where one of the mightiest empires the world had yet seen ruled an area of over 5 million square kilometers, lay a region that had split apart thanks to internal strife and barbarian invasion. After a few hundred years of smaller successor kingdoms vying for power, no one single group could get the upper hand. But a man from the edge of the empire finally united everything and built an empire that rivaled the earlier one. This sounds a bit like the story of Justinian or Charlemagne, but unlike those two, while Emperor Wen of Sui's dynasty didn't last long, the empire he created and the conquests he made certainly did. Wen pulled China out of nearly 400 years of chaos and stagnation following the collapse of the Han dynasty and helped to usher in an extended and prosperous golden age. After he came to power, China was united for over 300 years and spent most of the next six centuries as a single powerful state. This is the Almost Forgotten. Welcome to the Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at great historical lives that have mostly fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Episode 1.5, Emperor Wen of Sui. And if you enjoyed listening to me mispronounce names in the last few episodes, you'll really get a kick out of this one. Emperor Wen of Sui was born in 541 AD in northern China. His name was Yang Jian, although I'll refer to him as Emperor Wen, or just Wen, to avoid too much confusion. This was a name given to him after his death, but it's how he's mostly referenced now, so we'll stick with it. He was from an aristocratic family and was brought up by a Buddhist nun before attending school. China was basically divided into three kingdoms when he was born, but we'll get into that in a minute. At the same time, Justinian was in the process of reuniting most of the parts of the Roman Empire that bordered the Mediterranean. North of his territory, the Visigoths controlled most of Spain. Various Germanic kingdoms held most of the rest of northern Europe, and over a dozen small kingdoms ruled over England and Ireland. The Aksumite Empire had expanded its territory from the area south of Egypt to Yemen as well, controlling both sides of the Red Sea. The Sassanid dynasty ruled from Iraq to Afghanistan, and India was seeing the end of the Gupta Empire, with many small kingdoms vying for dominance. In the Americas, Teotihuacan had begun to decline thanks in part to famine, and its influence had waned. This helped to usher in the golden age of the Maya civilization, which was really at its zenith of influence and power around this time. Back in East Asia, three kingdoms, Koguryo, Shilla, and Pache, fought over Korea. North of China, the Gokturk tribal confederacy dominated the vast steppe from the Caspian Sea to what's now Inner Mongolia. And then there was the Middle Kingdom. By 500 AD, China was essentially split between the Northern Wei Dynasty and the Southern Chu Dynasty. While the Southern Dynasty did go pretty far south, even ruling over Northern Vietnam, the power base was at the northern end along the Yangtze River. The capital was in modern Nanjing. By the middle of the 6th century, the Southern Chu had been replaced with a different Southern Dynasty, first the Liang and then the Chen. The Liang survived as a rump state in the northwest region of the southern dynasty's territory. 
So essentially, it was upstream along the Yangtze River in central China, its capital near the modern city of Jingzhou. I had never heard of it, but it's in China, so I wasn't shocked to learn it has about five and a half million people today. The Chen, like the Liang and the Southern Chu before it, took great pains to be extremely Chinese. Although there wasn't really a word for China or Chinese at the time, it was the culture of the Han Dynasty that was what they aspired to and what we would think of as a Chinese culture. Much like Western Europeans spent centuries trying to recreate the Roman Empire, the Chinese looked back with reverence to the Han Dynasty, uniting China from approximately 200 BC to 200 AD, and tried to recreate their rule in many ways. The Chen maintained the rituals and the symbols of the Han Dynasty, and they were orthodox about their performance. They worked to preserve the Han dialects and behaviors, and act as the successor state. Many of the elite in the south had fled from the north, as the north experienced constant raiding from the Mongolian steppe. It may have been one or two million of them, and the emigres dominated the southern ruling class. Originally, after the Han Empire split, southern was a derisive term for local native. But eventually, the immigrants from the north mixed with the southerners to create a society that was pretty similar to the old Han dynasty, albeit with some southern flair mixed in, like eating rice instead of wheat. The Northern Way came into the picture in the late 300s and brought some stability to northern China. It was a dynasty built by a clan of Zhanbei tribesmen. The Zhanbei were some of those Mongolian steppe nomads. They were the rough, horse-riding, arrow-shooting types that scared the civilized folks to death. But by the middle of the 5th century... They had unified northern China and had gone native in many ways. In this case, going native actually meant they adopted more Chinese, quote-unquote, civilized traditions. You know, utilizing a bureaucracy, living in houses instead of tents, not eating dinner on horseback, those sort of things. At some point, just before the start of the 6th century, they formalized this more. Kind of like when Peter the Great decided he needed to force Russia into becoming more European, they decided they needed to adopt more Chinese systems, reforms, and lifestyles. This didn't sit well with some of the military leaders, especially those on the northern and western periphery of the empire who still lived on their horses and probably hadn't gotten a lot of time indoors getting used to being more civilized. What is known as the Revolt of the Six Garrisons thrust the northern way into civil war, and many Chinese nobles were killed. In 534, the empire was split in two. The Eastern Way, the group embracing the more traditional Chinese lifestyle, became the Northern Chu Empire in 550 AD, when a half-Han, half-Zhanbei, son of the Eastern Way's most powerful general and regent, took control. The Western Way, those who were less interested in a Chinese way of life, didn't last much longer as a dynasty. It was able to withstand attacks from the east and even expanded south, taking the Sichuan area in western China and essentially reducing what was left of the Liang territory to a vassal state. But in 556 AD, the northern Zhou, another Zhanbei-themed dynasty, succeeded the western way. Much like in the east, it was because of the empire's leading general. In this case, he actually died, and his nephew took the throne from the empire and gave it to the general's son. 
The name of the dynasty changed, as did the family in charge, but essentially it was the same kingdom, and it still embraced the elements of the nomadic culture from which it was originally born, at least as much as it could. But it also wasn't run by leaders who were totally anti-Chinese. Chinese society had a robust bureaucracy, and as the Northern Way became domesticated, these people didn't all become peasant farmers. Many did flee south, but others stayed in the north and worked under the new administration. So, while the Western Way did lead some attacks against the entrenched Chinese in the government, there were so many that were working throughout the realm that the government probably would have collapsed if it was completely desinicized. And so, the Northern Zhou also had many ethnic Han Chinese working for them. That was the kind of family that Wen was born into, and Wen's father, Yang Zhong, served under the Zhou administration. He must have done a pretty good job because he was elevated to a noble status and given a dukedom. He also supported that leading general who essentially seized power, so he picked the winning side of that dynastic argument, further solidifying his position. Wen followed in his father's footsteps and also served the northern Zhou. He received his first military appointment at age 14, which seems a little young, but hey, post-bar mitzvah and all that. He married into a powerful non-Chinese family soon after, when he married the daughter of a leading northern Zhou general. Her name was Dugu Chieloa, and they were both teenagers. She might have been about three years younger than him. He truly married a partner. In part, this was because of her own intelligence and force of will. In part, because the northern nomadic culture was less into the whole concubine thing, and women were a bit more respected. And this shouldn't be discounted. It seems they truly loved each other. Her family was more powerful than his from the Zhongnu tribes that had dominated the region north of China before the collapse of the Han. They had intermarried for generations with the northern Chinese and had helped found the Western Wei dynasty. That they were married is an indication of how respected Wen's father was, as well as Wen's early successes as a military officer. Despite the internal family struggles of the northern Zhou dynasty, there were three emperors in the first three years, all very closely related. The Yang family served the empire well and was rewarded for it. Wen's father eventually received the title the Duke of Sui, which I think was one of James Brown's nicknames. In 573, Wen's daughter was married to the son of the northern Zhou emperor and heir apparent to the dynasty. This could be looked at as the crowning achievement of a career climbing the political ladder. He would be the father-in-law of the emperor thanks to this union, but it was really just the beginning. That same year, the northern Zhou began to resume a somewhat quiet conflict against the successor to their old empire mates, the northern Shu. They convinced the third of the three empires ruling most of China, the southern Chen, to help them in this endeavor. This capitalized on the Chen Emperor's desire for lands north of the Yangtze River, and it probably didn't seem too threatening to the Chen, as a united north was the norm for hundreds of years, and they were never able to take the south. The southern Chen took land north of the Yangtze River up to the Huai River. The northern Zhou Emperor was a strong and competent ruler, and Wen was one of his most talented generals. In 575, the northern Zhou gathered 170,000 soldiers and advanced on Luoyang, one of the ancient capitals of China, near the two countries' shared border, 
although not the Chu's main city by any means at the time. The emperor fell ill, and the army ended up retreating from Luoyang as the northern Chu troops came up from the south to defend the area, a repeat of efforts at the same city a generation earlier. In January of 577, two years later, the Zhou went for the Chu heartland directly rather than nibbling around the edges. They took a border city of Pingyang after a protracted siege, then rescued it from a subsequent Chu attempt to retake it. Then they headed towards one of the northern Chu's capital city, Taiyuan. The Zhou emperor fought his way into the city and almost was captured in a Chu counterattack, escaping only because they couldn't shut him in. The gates wouldn't close because of all the dead bodies in the way. The next day, though, a full-force attack ended the resistance. They went on to capture the administrative capital soon after, and by the end of 577, northern China was again unified. Unfortunately, while we do know that Wen distinguished himself in the war against the northern Chu, and was likely one of the leading figures of the invasion, I haven't seen much in terms of what he did specifically. It's all probably sitting right there in the Book of Sui, a chronicle of the dynasty, available in Chinese if you can read it. It's easy to imagine the Zhanbei-led Western Empire defeated the Han-influenced East because steppe nomads always beat civilized folk. But it's not that simple. The East was much more populated, but the Han nobility were entrenched, and the Zhanbei warlords there had trouble exerting influence over them. The Western army was more cohesive and effective because they were more part of the empire. The West was more diverse. It was a smaller group that didn't necessarily have such a dominant ethnic group, whereas in the East, the Han subjects were just less willing to fight for their not-so-numerous Zhanbei overlords. After defeating the Northern Chu, the Northern Zhou then turned their attention south and retook those lands that Chen had just taken from Chu. It was a quick campaign and disastrous for Chen, who had to retreat back to the south, but also lost a great deal of men. This gave the northern Zhou the densely populated coastal plain along the Yellow River and the Huai River, essentially giving them control of everything north of the Yangtze up to the Great Wall, as well as the Sichuan area to the southwest. In 578, the northern Zhou emperor became sick and died, passing the kingdom on to his son, Emperor Xuan. Wen's daughter became the empress. Emperor Zhuan was an erratic and paranoid leader in the very best style of Roman emperors' crazy sons like Commodus and Caracalla. He was apparently obsessive about customs and traditions and even uniforms. Early in 579, he named his six-year-old son as heir and soon retired as emperor. He styled himself in a way that was more like Emperor Emeritus than Retired Emperor, giving himself more honors and attendance. He was fairly commonly described as being completely megalomaniacal. At some point he got mad at his wife, Wen's daughter, and in 580 he ordered the empress to kill herself. He may have been trying to raise the position of another one of his wives. Dugu, Wen's wife, demonstrated her ability to navigate the court when she successfully pleaded on behalf of her daughter. But the emperor was distrustful of the whole Yang clan. His father-in-law was too strong of a leader, and his wife was apparently annoying him. Wen was working to get himself out of the capital, trying to get stationed somewhere safe, when Zhuan became ill. Wen was ordered to the emperor's side, 
perhaps on forged orders from his own allies in the court. Emperor Zhuan soon succumbed to his illness, and his death was kept secret until when agreed to be named as the regent for the young emperor, Zhuan's son, Emperor Jing. The histories don't seem to indicate that Wen arranged for all of this to happen, but they make it seem like his friends encouraged it along, so who knows? Whether he initially planned a palace coup or was just acting out of self-preservation, he was a leading administrator and general and now was the regent for the young emperor, his grandson. He invited prominent northern Zhou princes to the capital for a wedding, and they were put under a sort of house arrest with armed escorts everywhere they went. A few of them were nabbed plotting against Wen. One assassination attempt apparently almost succeeded. Those princes were executed. Wen wasn't declaring himself emperor, but he was trying to stop the royal family from taking his regency away. Rebellions sprang up, including one by the man who had conquered Sichuan, a respected and well-known general, Yuqi Jiang. Yuqi was actually in Ye, or Ye Chang, the old capital of the northern Chu, as the military governor stationed there. He had several key allies on his side, but they were scattered across the empire, while Wen's power was concentrated in the center. And concentrated it was, while his enemies remained allied but not coordinated, it helped Wen divide and conquer. Wen also had allies on his side, outside of those who had helped him secure the regency. One of those was Gao Zhang, a military commander whose family was connected to Dugu's. Wen couldn't get anyone to go fight Yuqi Jiang, but Gao Zhang volunteered. He brought an army to Ye, where he defeated Yuqi, who committed suicide after the battle. With the leading rebel general dead, opposition melted away, and the resistance was effectively ended. The last big rebel force was in Sichuan, and ended their resistance in the middle of 580. The rest of the holdouts were dealt with pretty quickly. This, unsurprisingly, elevated Gao Jiang to a high position in Wen's administration. The biggest threat to Wen, other than internal division and rebellion, lay to the north. That's where the Gokturk Khanate, also called the Turkic Khaganate, or the Tujue, dominated. The Turks were very new on the scene as a major power. They were a vassal state to the Roran Khaganate, but after some internal conflicts, allied with the Western Way in the 550s and took over. They expanded west, raiding as far as the Crimean Peninsula, crossing the Cimmerian Bosporus, and attacking the city of Panticapaeon, where Mithridates killed himself. They also began raiding into northern China and presented a big threat to Wen. If they came in and attacked as he was still trying to quash rebellions, it could have been disastrous. Fortunately for Wen, he didn't ever have to actually fight the Turks. By 580, the massive Khaganate was splitting asunder. Civil war tore the Khaganate apart, and China's new role wasn't to pay tribute and worry about raids. Instead, Emperor Wen used political intrigue to make sure that the eastern part of the Khaganate stayed weak, supporting the dynastic strife there, while it still remained strong enough to not allow the western portion to retake it. This status quo remained for nearly 200 years. By 581, Wen had crushed most of the rebels, and the threat to the north was much diminished. So he decided it was time to take pretense away from his position. First, he took the title of prince before adopting the style and dress of an emperor. He did all those ceremonial acts that made it clear he was starting a new dynasty, the Sui dynasty. 
He also executed 59 northern Zhou princes, including the young son that Emperor Zhuan had handed his throne to, Wen's own grandson. It was a bloody and effective way of keeping those with legitimate links to the old dynasty from reclaiming the throne. As an emperor, he gained a reputation for being a micromanager and a tireless worker. He could be moody, but he was successful. He and Dugu were called the two sage emperors within the palace, showing how much influence and respect she had. Dugu was a devout Buddhist, and Wen had a soft spot for Buddhism himself thanks to his upbringing. Buddhism was not always welcomed by the different authorities, especially up north, but the Sui dynasty really brought it back to the forefront of Chinese society. It was the personal religion of the emperor and the empress, but also much of the population, so it became a uniting factor as what had been three separate kingdoms for two centuries tried to become one. Along with the Northern Zhou Empire, Wen took over the Northern Zhou capital, Chang'an. This was the ancient capital of the Qin dynasty where the Terracotta army was buried and was the capital of the revered Han dynasty. But after moving in, he was unhappy with the city because by the 580s, it was a mess. Cramped, dirty, and ugly after so many sieges, sackings, and reconstructions, Wen decided to just move the capital. Rather than picking another strategic location or moving to another metropolis, he just built a new version of Chang'an a few miles south and east. You can do these things when you're the son of heaven. It actually had a different name, Dakshin, until about 618, when people just started calling it Chang'an again. Today it is known as Xi'an, which, unlike many names mentioned here, isn't a result of reinterpreting mistranslations. Chang'an and Xi'an are actually different names. If you think this is confusing, I'd like to point out that Constantine's capital in the east was actually Nicomedia, the rival city to Mithridates, before he moved it to Byzantium and then changed its name. So let's not judge too harshly. The city was laid out in an 84 square kilometer walled rectangle, give or take, with a walled palace inside that. It was a very meticulously designed city with administrative districts and grand avenues. Emperor Wen moved into his new digs in early 583, although the city wasn't finished being built yet, and it was relatively devoid of people. The imperial princes were ordered to build houses within the city walls. Space was reserved for temples, and endowing the construction of a Buddhist or Taoist temple got you an imperial plaque or some other tchotchke. Anne Paladin, in her book Chronicle of the Chinese Emperors, said, quote, his palace and capital, Chang'an, were based on classical cosmological plans as visible symbols of imperial power. Expert engineers and architects designed exquisite novelties for the imperial palace, such as a pavilion for several hundred guests which could be rotated swiftly by a mechanism underneath, unquote. Around this time, Wen ordered a canal to be built out from the capital to the Yellow River. It was called the Canal for Expanded Communication, and it was the first of many canals that the dynasty would be remembered for building. The most impressive of these is the Grand Canal, which is still in use today. It's over a thousand miles long, and it links Beijing and Hangzhou. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and it's still really heavily used in the south. Wen also reformed China's administration. Gao Zhang helped Emperor Wen do something very important for large empires, collect taxes. Thanks to the systems he implemented, the Sui Empire taxed close to 9 million households in 606, 
more than double the taxable population in 598. This was no small thing. Without effective tax collection, China may have had to find income in other ways, such as expansive conquest, exploration, and colonization. World history could have been quite different. But Wen was probably more famous for reforming civil service selection. China already had a robust civil service, and there was some form of examinations in the past, although those were probably more about displaying your understanding of the classics before a high-up administrator would accept candidates. It was sort of like if the Byzantine Empire quizzed its future bureaucrats on Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But that started to change with the Sui dynasty. In the late 580s, when instituted quotas, each prefecture had to send a certain number of men to the capital each year. These men would take examinations, and it seemed they were more than just understandings of the classics, which, to be fair, did also offer philosophies on things like administration. Instead, now candidates would actually be asked how they'd handle different situations and what actions they would take. They had to answer essay questions, and they earned degrees based on their results. It served to bring fresh blood into the civil service and actual talented, intelligent men. Women weren't allowed to participate. The imperial exams were further refined over the centuries, but this was the beginning of the process of robust examinations. Wen also greatly reformed the local government, but as much as I'm sure you all want to hear about the reform of field administration and the changing of the local nomination systems, as well as a myriad of new laws and codes he introduced, yeah. In 587, Emperor Wen decided there wasn't any reason to keep the small Liang state as a semi-independent vassal kingdom anymore. With the northern Chu and Sichuan areas under sway control, it was just a matter of time. The Chen in the south were weak, still reeling from the massive defeat they had suffered at the hands of the Zhou, and Liang was simply allowed to exist out of the kindness of Wen's heart. But it was time to finish uniting the region. So the Liang territory, in between Sui and Chen, was absorbed. Before even that, though, Wen had one of his generals head down to Sichuan and start building a fleet. You see, the biggest reason for the north-south stalemate was the difference in geographies and styles of warfare. The south was wet and full of rivers, so it was difficult for the northern horsemen to do battle. And the north was dry with more open space, giving the southerners a disadvantage. If a northerner wanted to take the south, they'd have to lose their cavalry advantage and conquer it by defeating southerners at their own game, war on the rivers. The next year, an official document was sent to the Chen that outlined their crimes. This gave Wen a moral, religious, and political imperative to end their rule. He also made hundreds of thousands of copies and sent them out. Imagine living there as this freight train was rolling over all the lands around and a letter shows up that's like, you're next. In 589, the Sui attacked, and not only was the war over control over the Yangtze, there were significant clashes on the Yangtze. Not that all the battles were on the river, but many engagements took place in its immediate vicinity. There are lots of stories of the Sui crossing the river either without Chen knowledge or by defeating Chen boats to have surprised land forces on the southern side. Emperor Wen was on the boats when the attacks began, and he had land columns marching downstream west to east along either side of the Yangtze River. Cities fell, and soon the Chen were fleeing, 
and the Sui were racing to the capital of Jianqing in modern-day Nanjing. A Chen force of 30,000 men attempted to intercept the fleet from the west, coming down the Han River, which meets the Yangtze at modern-day Wuhan. But Wen's son, Yang Jun, had stayed with a fleet to block the pursuit, while Wen and the larger force made their way up to Jiangqing and fought a massive engagement there. In February of 582, a Sui force surprised the Chen east of the city and kept them occupied, while another attacked the gate and the capital was quickly captured. The Chen leadership didn't seem to help the situation, with stories of the Sui forces being welcomed when they had finally fought their way to the cities. It took longer to capture the parts of the empire at the mouth of the river, and Wen's naval forces helped subdue the area near modern-day Shanghai, and the conquest was finally complete. Wen ordered the capital of the southern empire's Jianqing destroyed. It was a very important city at the time, and may have actually been the largest city in the world, with nearly a million and a half people. Nanjing today is only about three hours' drive from Shanghai up the Yangtze, and in the 6th century it was the hub of the region. Wen was magnanimous in his conquest, pardoning all the Chen officials and giving a decade of tax breaks to the defeated, although it would have been really tough to incorporate them into the tax structure quickly, so this is more smart and practical than kind. The Sui also released the soldiers they captured, rather than dragging them off to slavery as previous northern dynasties had done. This was certainly appreciated. But Emperor Wen also wanted to assimilate and create a united empire, rather than just have the Chen swear allegiance, and the laws and civil code from the north was quickly imposed on the south. The southern Chen Empire was a continuation of over 300 years of southern self-rule, and they not only looked at themselves as a continuation of the Han, they looked at the northerners as uncouth barbarians. There were cultural and now linguistic differences between the two. The problems came to a head in 590 when there were rumors of an upcoming forced relocation to the uncivilized north, and revolt swept throughout the region. It was recovered for the Sui after some difficult fighting, and the emperor's son, Yang Guang, remained in the area to act as governor. While the Sui did destroy Jian King, they worked to culturally join Chen into the larger empire. Yang Guang helped enforce Emperor Wen's strategy down there. He realized that Buddhism could be helpful in reunification. He cultivated the administration's relationship with the Buddhist priesthood and invited noted Confucian scholars to the capital to teach and write. Things like this kept the local leaders, at least the priesthood and scholarly part of the elite, happy. If you look at a map of China, you'll notice that the Yangtze, certainly the lower Yangtze, isn't exactly in the southern part of China. Most of the Chen lived up in the river valley, Below that were vassal states, local aboriginal tribes that were considered uncivilized by Chinese rulers. These two were absorbed into the empire along with the Chen. At some point, Wen had to send one of his trusted advisors, Pei Zhu, south to the region where Guangzhou sits today. Guangzhou was known as Canton for many years. There he defeated a rebel leader who had fled south and tried to rally the aboriginal peoples there. This was considered the distant south to China. It was not populated with people that they really considered Chinese, or who would consider themselves Chinese. Further south, northern Vietnam had been dominated by China, essentially as a vassal state, since the Han Dynasty took the region in about 111 BC. 
Actually, some of the Guangzhou region had been controlled by this Nam Viet kingdom as well. Several notable rebellions, including by the Trung sisters in the 40s AD and Lady Treyu in the 240s, were exceptions. The major port cities of Guangzhou and Hanoi were controlled by China for most of this time. But in the mid-500s, the weakness of the southern dynasties allowed an independent Vietnamese kingdom. Emperor Wen sent a general named Liu Fang to retake the kingdom, and by 602 it was once again part of China, where it remained for another 300 years. South of that was Champa, which was a separate group from the Viet people who lived in the north. They were less influenced culturally by China, and had more of an Indian influence than Nam Viet did. The Champa didn't have much contact with China, but Liu Fang went south to take the region. There was a battle that involved war elephants and apparently some pretty good elephant traps by China. I don't know, they took some golden tablets and Champa was defeated. They sent tribute for decades, maybe more than that, but China had no real influence there other than that of a faraway power you wanted to keep happy. Wen did have one major defeat as emperor, and that was against the Kogoryo Kingdom. The southern part of the Korean peninsula was divided between two kingdoms, and the Kogoryo had the north and significant territory in what is today northeast China. It's said that the Sui sent 300,000 men to take the kingdom, but they were quickly bogged down in an early and exceptionally heavy rainy season. The naval forces were also hampered by rough seas, and the Kogoryo forces constantly harassed the Sui military. It was a disaster, and Wen lost a significant portion of his force. It was his only major defeat, and an attempt to get revenge 15 years later would also fail spectacularly and be a major cause of the fall of the dynasty. Back at the home front, after some successful political wrangling with his brothers, Yang Guang convinced his parents to name him as the official heir in 600. The next year, Emperor Wen had a massive Buddhist celebration in honor of his 60th birthday. The 60th birthday is a big one in the Chinese culture, considered the completion of a full cycle of life, and many monks, including those from the south, came to celebrate. The following year, the Empress Dugu died, and Wen was devastated. He was said to have lamented her absence later when he himself was mortally ill, saying, quote, If the Empress were still alive, I would not have come to this. Unquote. By 603, many of the affairs of state had been handed over to Yang Guang. Wen, seemingly becoming more paranoid and less effective as a ruler, retreated to his summer palace and let his son manage everything. There's no evidence that Yang Guang poisoned his father other than speculation by many contemporary authors. But Wen died, and soon after his death, his youngest son tried to break away the region roughly corresponding to the northern Chu, but Yang Guang was able to easily sweep away this rivalry, and the kingdom remained united under him. Wen's grandson inherited the throne in 618, and was soon deposed by Emperor Gaozhu of Tang. The Tang dynasty lasted another 300 years, but it was built upon the prosperity of the Sui. Emperor Wen was able to do in China what Justinian and Charlemagne tried but failed to do in Europe. He recreated a brand new version of the old empire that ruled the massive region. In doing so, he ushered in a period of unity and a golden age that China hadn't seen in at least three centuries. 
The Tang Dynasty that followed is considered by many to be the height of Chinese civilization, at least until modern times. The Sui Dynasty didn't last long beyond Wen's lifetime, but his unification of China, his reforms, and the civil projects he started lasted well beyond his reign and set up China for centuries of prosperity. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, you can find maps and pictures on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at almostforgottenpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. And if you did enjoy it, the best way to show your support is through iTunes. Subscribe, comment, and give out stars liberally. It's much appreciated. Join me next time when we move ahead about 300 years and west about 4,500 miles to look at a man who helped forge a country and a people out of a rival set of groups, creating an empire that lasted nearly a millennium. Thanks again for listening.